Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. So let us start tonight with a story from last week uh, that I didn't get a chance to talk about. Uh, So it was in the news last week, but in case you missed it, I definitely want to talk about it because it's really, um, I just think a fun and interesting story, which we could all use these days. (laughs) Um, Given some of the things that are happening in our world, it's fun to talk about things that involve science, but are also just fun. So For the first time, uh, we may get to see cookies being baked on the International Space Station. Now, the first thing I do have to note, though, is that they will most likely, in fact, certainly not be able to be eaten by the crew that cooks them, though we'll find out later that they did get a sample at least. And so the crew from NASA will be trying out a new space oven that will attempt to bake chocolate chip cookies. If the dough actually rises as it should, it means that future astronauts will be able to add fresh baked goods to their diet. And that could be a real boost because it's generally limited to prepackaged foods, uh, specially designed to be eaten in space, which does often mean freeze-dried. I'm sure most of us have at some point eaten uh, freeze-dried astronaut ice cream. (laughs) And so for this time, however... Once cooled, the samples are removed from the rack for pictures and returned to the ground for analysis, according to the official NASA experiment description. Now, they note that part of the mission is to understand more about basic heat transfer properties in microgravity. But a bigger factor, as I mentioned above, is the benefit of the astronauts themselves. Crew members may experience psychological and physiological benefits from eating flavorful cooked meals. And so the oven was created by a couple who called it originally the Zero G uh, Kitchen, or their their project is Zero G Kitchen. And so that is Space Entrepreneur, which I think is a very odd title to have in one's life, but... I guess some people are living a better dream than (laughs) us uh, normal people. Uh, Ian Fichtenbaum and his spouse, Jordana, who is apparently a social media specialist. Uh, But anyways, (laughs) the couple hope to develop a whole space kitchen, uh, one appliance at a time, starting with this oven. And so they worked with a space services firm uh, called NanoRacks, to build the oven and partnered with a hotel chain, which will be providing the dough. Now, the tough part is knowing how elements like baking powder, baking soda, and yeast will behave in microgravity. When you bake here on the ground, you put the cookie on the tray. The bottom is flat and the top is a little bit curved based on the ratio of your ingredients, NanoRacks engineer Mary Murphy reported. But obviously, 
nobody's done this in space. So we don't know exactly what it's going to look like. It could come out more like a cylinder. It could actually create a sphere. We really don't know. And I think that's one of the more exciting things we'll find out. And so again, the cookies are sealed in individual silicon pouches, which are then mounted into the oven in order to reduce the potential risk of crumbs. Now, this was my immediate thought when I read this article, uh, or I read the headline, I should say, just the headline. I thought, in a microgravity environment uh, full of sensitive equipment, free-floating crumbs could be quite a risk. Um I immediately started to, you know, think about eating cookies and all of the crumbs. And and so, <laughs> even though I think it's amazing, I was also a little bit worried. Um, and so hopefully they will have some way of reducing the crumbs uh, when being eaten. Now, I do know that they do um, have sort of prepackaged desserts, including, I think, brownies. And brownies tend to be a little bit uh, prone to crumbs as well. And so I guess uh, there has been some way developed to make sure that when they're eating them, the crumbs don't get everywhere. Um, because again, microgravity, sensitive equipment, crumbs, not a good idea. <laughs> um, and so according to the AP, the oven uses electrical heating elements and can reach 350 degrees, around twice as hot as what the astronauts currently use to warm their food. Each cookie will bake for 15 to 20 minutes at 325 degrees. Now, um, the reason they're using electrical heating elements is because you can't really do convection very well in, again, microgravity. <laughs> and so it actually might be a while yet before we know the outcome of the experiment. They have a lot of things that they're doing. <laughs> and so five frozen cookie pouches were actually sent to them over the summer, and three of those cookies will be returned to Earth for analysis once they get to them. However, pre-baked sample cookies were... Uh, sent in the most recent delivery for the six astronauts to try. So I guess um, I should have double-checked about that to see if there was any crumb-based <laughs> problems. Um, if I find out anything, I will let you know. <laughs> and so if all goes well, the manufacturers hope that they'll be able to also eventually bake rolls and other small baked goods. Now, the developers are also planning on creating a suite of other kitchen appliances, so hopefully this will be a success and allow the astronauts to have some fresh baked pastries while they orbit the planet and enjoy, again, mostly highly processed foods. And I think that part of the other thing that people are looking at for this is the idea of creating living spaces that are a little more like living on Earth based in microgravity so that we can um, have some more creature comforts, so to speak, when uh, we have more extensive versions of uh, living in microgravity. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about a moon base and things like that. Um, there's actually been a lot of talk this week about the moon because uh, Congress is basically uh, trying to put the brakes 
on uh, the idea of accelerating the timetable for the human return to the moon um, by NASA. And so they're a little bit dubious about the timeline. And I would agree wholeheartedly. Um, because part of the problem with an accelerated timeline is that it makes it much easier for things to go wrong. And it also costs a lot more money, um, which I'm not really concerned about in the grand scheme of things. Um, that's not really my worry. It's my, my worry is that things can go wrong very easily when people are rushed and hurrying, especially since it was pretty clear that the reason that the timetable was accelerated was for political gain, not for any kind of actual uh, mission uh, mission reasons. And so I think that I'm hoping that Congress will be able to kind of push back on that and say, nope, your original date's just fine. <laughs> uh, so we will have to see about that. Okay. So let us now move to an update about a uh, old friend, something we talked about once on this show, once or twice at least, MU69, aka that weird double-lobed Kuiper belt object that the New Horizons probe visited this past New Year. So after it went to Pluto and did amazing, amazing work at Pluto and just gave us so much information and just pretty much blew everyone's minds. Uh, the next stop was MU69. And so that was the weird kind of looked like a, like the start of a snowman. <laughs> and so it had been referred to as Ultima Thule, which one might think is a pretty cool name, uh, during the early days, but it turns out, and this isn't really why NASA says they changed it, but it probably is a little bit, <laughs> is that it does ultimately have, uh, if you really search, some unsavory connections, especially to the Nazis. And so uh, it refers to the, they referred to it as the mythological homeland of the mythic Aryan race, uh, because of course the Aryan race is not a thing. Um, and so uh, Aryans are actually uh, Indo-European people. Anyways, um, we'll talk about that another day. Uh, and so, you know, some people kind of felt like it should fall out of favor. But it was always just a nickname. And so now the uh, KBO is called Arakoth. And that is a Powhatan word for sky. The name Arakoth reflects the inspiration of looking to the skies and wondering about the stars and worlds beyond our own, Alan Stern, New Horizons principal investigator, said in the NASA release. That desire to learn is at the heart of the New Horizons mission, and we're honored to join with the Powhatan community and tell the people of Maryland and the people of Maryland in this celebration of discovery. Now, both the Hubble Space Telescope, which is the first object to have seen, uh, or the first, um, the first way in which we saw this object, and the New Horizons missions, both are based in Maryland. And so uh, the area of Maryland and around the Chesapeake Bay are very important to the Powhatan people. 
And it's especially nice (laughs) to have had this happen this particular month, uh, where for the first time since 1990, the president has not declared November simply National Native American Heritage Month, as it should be, but also some sort of ridiculously made up, not that all these aren't made up, but still, uh, National American History and Founders Month. Uh, which is basically a disgrace, like much of the rest of the presidency um, under the current regime. And uh, yeah, so everything about this is terrible. <laughs> and um, it just, it just, you know, it's amazing how it never seems to have a bottom of how petty these people can be and how just awful Um Obviously, views and opinions are my own, um, but yes, I just I'm always shocked and amazed at how just low they can go. Um, and in fact, the statement that he made on the Founders Month that can be found easily on WhiteHouse.gov, uh, but for some reason, the one uh, proclaiming Native American Heritage Month is missing. Hmm. Let me clarify, wrote journalist and Oglala tribe member Simon Moya Smith on Twitter. Trump subverts and undermines hashtag Native American Heritage Month by instead celebrating the founders, white men who in the Declaration of Independence explicitly referred to natives as merciless Indian savages. And so, yeah, that pretty much sums it up. Um, Everything about it is terrible. And um, most of our founders weren't great people. Um, And uh, I think this is definitely a part of the whole idea about, uh, you know, never meet your heroes or uh, kill your heroes, um, those sorts of movements. Because as we found out, a lot of the people that we thought were really cool turned out to be terrible. Um, not that it was really that big of a surprise, um, given the fact that these were, you know, white men in the 18th century, um, who, you know, were perfectly fine with slavery and things like that. And, uh, so I'm still team Ben Franklin. Um, he is my favorite, um, (laughs) You know, he was kind of terrible too, because they were all terrible, but um, he seems to have been maybe the least terrible, giant question mark. <laughs> okay, let's totally move on now and uh, sort of get back to science. And so we are going to move from space and politics and turn back millions of years uh, to when the first flowering plants or angiosperms were just starting to take over the Cretaceous landscape. Now, scientists have long assumed uh, and hypothesized that insect pollination was a key contributor to the ability for flowering plants to become highly abundant. Insects that could become pollinators already existed by the time that the ancestors of flowering plants first diverged from gymnosperms in the Triassic period. And by the late Cretaceous, flowering plants had replaced conifers as the dominant tree on earth. And of course, it just makes sense. That's what we have today. 
But despite this being a fairly obvious connection, there was no physical proof. We had never found any way to say, yes, this definitely happened. Until now, (laughs) obviously. And so paleontologists from the United States and China have found an ancient beetle with pollen grains still stuck to its legs in a piece of 99 million year old Burmese amber. It's exceedingly rare to find a specimen where both the insect and the pollen are preserved in a single fossil, said Indiana University's professor David Dilcher. Now the team used optical microscopy, confocal laser scanning microscopy, and X-ray microcommuted tomography, or micro-CT, to determine the morphology of the insect and the pollen grains. Now, the insect is, has been named Angimordella bermanita, and it's new to science, but it is a member of the tumbling flower beetles, family Mordellidae. And it was determined to be a pollinator by its specialized physical structures, which made it suitable for the task, including its body shape and, stunningly enough, its pollen-feeding mouth parts. (laughs) Aside from the significance as earliest known direct evidence of insect pollination of flowering plants, this specimen perfectly illustrates the cooperative evolution of plants and animals during this time period, during which a true exposition of flowering plants occurred, Professor Dilcher noted. Um, I think he meant explosion, but he said exposition, so, you know. Um, (laughs) And so... It wasn't actually easy to find these tiny grains of pollen because they were hidden in the insect's body hairs. So you've got a tiny little beetle with tiny little hairs hiding tiny, tiny little pieces of pollen. But the researchers got lucky. They were able to take advantage of the fact that pollen grains glow under fluorescent lights. This allowed them to see those tiny particles in bright contrast against the insect's dark shell. Now, the pollen was found to have evolved to be spread through contact with insects. Uh, They noted this because of its size, ornamentation, and clumping ability. And so this basically all meant it was uh, ready-made to stick to insects as they came down to actually... um, eat some of that pollen, the rest of the pollen kind of, or not the rest, but other bits of the pollen would get stuck to them. And then when they went to the next um, flower, they would pollinate the flower. The grains also likely originated from a flower species in the group Eudicots, one of the most common types of flowering plant species, noted Professor Dilcher. The prior earliest direct evidence of insect pollination of angiosperm was reported from several pollen collection bees from the Middle Eocene by Eckfeld and Messel, 48 and 45 million years old, respectively, in Germany. Professor Dilcher and co-authors wrote, Our findings thereby extend the known geological range of direct evidence of insect pollination of angiosperm by at least 50 million years. 
not bad for one tiny little beetle in a piece of amber. Um, and it's crazy. We've been getting so many really, really fascinating and interesting things uh, coming out of amber lately. And so um, it's just really, it's just such a cool thing that you have this sap that turns into basically stone that just is able to so perfectly um, preserve so many different things. I mean, bits of birds, early birds, all sorts of insects, bits of early dinosaur. I mean, just crazy. Um, and it's also beautiful. And so, yeah, um, I think that we will continue to find new and interesting things uh, in Amber and I think that, again, this is probably one of those places where one of my favorite things to always talk about is the idea that there's probably things hiding on shelves, in boxes, in back rooms of museums. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if there are some really interesting things that people just haven't gotten a chance to look at yet. Um, if I had like all the money in the world I and had already solved all the like you know, hunger problems and things like that, I would start just funding people to go into museums and just solely work on, you know, cataloging what's in back rooms. Don't look for anything new, just just catalog what's in the back room first. <laughs> um, but okay, so let us move on and talk about another find, this one from the early Cretaceous. A 120 million year old flying dinosaur found in Japan, which most likely has roots even earlier, perhaps into the late Jurassic. Now, the research published in Communications Biology describes the species as the second most basal or primitive flying dinosaur in the evolutionary tree. And it's actually an entirely new genus and species. It's been designated. Fuchiopteryx prima. And so that is very cool. The research was led by Takayua Imai, and, uh, who is a paleontologist from the Institute of Dinosaur Research at Fukai Prefecture University in Japan. And so this describes the bird, a bird that is an early pegastillian, and that is a bird that has a triangular plate located at the tip of the backbone, which is used by more modern birds to support their flight feathers. Now, this bird was most likely capable of limited flight, but its piglet style uh, was not yet fully functional, being at that point more of a result of a shrinking tail. And so they suspect that it could probably have glided or flapped for short distances, but did not have anything approaching full flight capability. Now, the pigastyle, um, the pigastyle, is most important for placing the specimen in the phylogenetic family tree. Now, it's it's a really interesting uh, thing that is in some birds um, in these early times and not in others. And so it turns out even that a couple of theropod dinosaurs, uh, such as T-Rex and raptors, that apparently did not fly, apparently possessed the pigastyle, said Imai. Studies of 
Fukiepteryx indicates that the pigastyle evolved at least twice independently during the evolutionary evolution of birds, once in the lineage of Fukiepteryx and once in the lineage of modern birds. The observation that long-tailed Gelohornis is phylogenetically more advanced than short-tail Fukiepteryx, together with the presence of piglistyle in non-avian theropods, suggests that the piglistyle was not a, quote, must-have for flight. And so basically what that means is that it might make sense that because modern birds have it, that it was important for flight. And so if you didn't have it, you wouldn't be able to fly. But there are other birds that still had long tails and thus didn't have a piglet style that were able to fly, at least in some manners. And so, especially given the fact that there were some dinosaurs that had it, that just, you know, were walking around and not doing anything with it, suggests that it's not necessarily as um, important as one might think. And so that's kind of just a it's a little bit of an aside <laughs> um, and it's a little bit hard to understand sometimes. Um, so anyways, let's move on. So the specimen was discovered in the Kitadani dinosaur quarry in Fukai prefecture. And it is the first bird from this early developmental period to be found outside of Northeastern China. The specimen is three-dimensional, which is exciting since most birds from this time period have been compressed into 2D impressions. So uh, if you think of the famous Archaeopteryx, it's basically uh, been sandwiched <laughs> uh, between two slabs, and it is basically two-dimensional. And so to have something that's actually three-dimensional is pretty cool. Uh, the specimen would have been almost fully grown and would have been around the size of a pigeon. Now, one big caveat is that unfortunately, the head is too damaged to be reconstructed, uh, even digitally. So basically what they did is they haven't even taken it out of the rock. Um, they actually did um, uh, micro CT scanning of it. And then they were able to then take those scans and create a digital version of them in order to create a model of what it would have looked like. Um, because they don't want to damage the actual bones because of course, bird bones are, uh, usually hollow. Um, and so they could be very easily damaged. And so to leave it in situ in the rock, um, especially since they have these advanced um, imaging techniques, just makes sense. And so the problem about this is that this leaves several observations that might be otherwise illuminating out of the realm of possibility. So there's a lot of evolutionary uh, questions you can answer by looking at the skull, unfortunately. <laughs> And so this is just, the whole thing is a little bit odd. So um, I think people are just still trying to piece together exactly what this means for early birds. And so that's why all of the talk about um, the pigastyle and things like that to sort of, they're still trying to develop an idea of exactly what was going on. And so 
despite the fact that it's almost certainly a very basal specimen, um, very early in the development, it was found in relatively late sediment, with birds clearly showing further evolutionary um, advantages, having been found in earlier sedimentation letter layers, so having been uh, found in older layers. We were so surprised that we did the whole analysis again, as we thought we did something wrong, Amani wrote. But it turned out that no matter how many times we checked our data and methods, the results did not change. And so this actually uh, turns out to support a little bit new research that suggests that there may have been several different early bird design lineages that developed within the Mesozoic. And so it might have been that you had the um, Fuchiopteryx and you might have had some other things that were sort of trying to figure out how to create birds from uh, dinosaurs. And so you had dinosaurs that already had feathers, but there were probably several different um, lineages that kind of popped up. But it's hard to piece together now because A, fossils are so rare. Even though, again, we have all of these fossils everywhere, I always, it, I know it's hard to sort of grasp the fact that despite that, fossils are exceedingly rare. And birds are also have really fragile bones, so they don't tend to fossilize very well. And it turns out that we don't have any way to sort of compare them to modern birds because the ancestors of modern birds are the only ones that survived the end Cretaceous mass extinction. And so this makes studying ancient birds all the more harder because we only have the one lineage left and that makes it hard to piece together the different habitats of other lineages that may have existed. So it's all very interesting and there's all still a bunch of questions left up in the air, but it's still cool to have this new uh, addition to that sort of early, very early moment when birds are just developing into uh, what they will become today. Okay. So it is that time when we should take a break and do some PSAs and show promos. And then I will come back and we will talk about more very cool things. So hang on for just a moment. Hello, this is John Hodgman, resident expert for The Daily Show with John Stewart and author of More Information Than You Require, speaking into a small machine representing WXOJLP Northampton Valley Free Radio found on your radio dial at 103.3 frequency modulation. That is all. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Ship is new and old, indie pop, 
psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze, lots of chiming, jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Ship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. It's time to ask Mr. Green from the Sierra Club. Thirsty in San Diego asks, Hey, Mr. Green, should I buy my beer in bottles or in cans? Well, Thirsty, I'm grateful someone finally went beyond the paper versus plastic quandary to a new meaningful dilemma. As with that old standby, it's a tough call. I could suggest that you purchase your suds in returnable kegs. This might be frowned upon by those who look to Mr. Green as an apostle of moderation. Next to kegs, Mr. Green would personally opt for bottles because they usually contain better varieties of beer and because manufacturing glass creates less pollution and requires less energy than making aluminum. Since glass is a much heavier material, however, the additional fuel used to ship bottles outweighs some of the benefits of making them. Aluminum also has a leg up on the recycling end. About 45% of beer and soda cans get recycled, as opposed to 20% of glass containers. Both percentages could be greatly improved if more states implemented bottle deposit laws, a fine, practical idea that the beverage industries are doing their damnedest to fight. Ask Mr. Green and learn a lot more online at sierraclubradio.org. When you get home at night and switch on the lights, do you feel good about the source of your electricity? Did you know that you can choose to power your home with 100% local, clean electricity? You have the power to say no to the standard mix of polluters like natural gas, coal, and oil. Make the switch to clean electricity produced right here in New England. It's easy. Sign up for New England Wind or New England Green Start without any contracts or commitments. Just go to www.massenergy.org forward slash C-E-T. Fresh Sounds with your host, Ron Freshly, Tuesdays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. on WXOJLP, bringing you the music of Bud Powell, Wardell Gray, Art Blakey, Duke Ellington, Abby Lincoln, Tad Dameron, Yousef Latif, Bix Beiderbeck, Cassandra Wilson, Tom Harrell, Jane Ira Bloom, and thousands more. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses... The flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Sure, humans can be a little weird at times. But take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Aquí habla Marta Martínez, acupunturista de Stay in Touch. Está oyendo a Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, Northampton. Okay, we are back. And we are going to talk about another really cool use of technology in uh, elucidating ancient remains. And so we're going to move several millions, uh, million years ahead in time, though. Uh, and so we're going to look at an amazing new way to look at ancient footprints. 
researchers working at a location called Alkali Flats at the White Sands National Monument in New Mexico have begun using ground penetrating radar or GRP, uh, using radar scans to find what are called ghost tracks. And so these are tracks from long dead creatures that are not necessarily the easiest uh, to see above the ground. They're there, but um, because this is an area full of, well, sand and wind and things like that, um, and it's very um, white as well, um, you know, again, everything is always very... uh, imaginatively named. (laughs) Uh, It's not easy to see them usually. Now, one such track is actually extremely interesting. It shows that a human walked across the area, then a proboscidean, possibly a Colombian mammoth, uh, Mammothus columbii, walked across the same area and stepped on one of the human prints. And then either the same human or another came back through this area and stepped into the mammoth track that had been imprinted upon the original human track, which I just think is so cool. Now, they would have been walking around the area around 12,000 years ago at the end of the Pleistocene era. But now the tracks can tell us a lot about the animals and the people who left them, such as the size and gait of an animal the ways in which humans and the now-vanished megafauna interacted, and helps us glimpse more insights into what the end of the Ice Age was like. We never thought to look under footprints, said research scientist Thomas Urban from Cornell University and lead author of the paper published in Scientific Reports, but it turns out that the sediment itself has a memory that records the effect the effects of the animal's weight and momentum in a beautiful way. It gives us a way to understand the biomechanics of extinct fauna that we never had before. And what's great about GRP is that it's it's fairly non-invasive. It's been a staple of archaeology work due to the fact that you can scan large areas and determine where the archaeologists should concentrate their digging efforts rather than just digging a series of sondages or test pits, as was the habit before the advent of things like GRP. Now, the only issue with GRP is that the device does need to be dragged across the landscape. We began with magnetic sensors, magnetometers, largely because they do not require contact with the ground, and we were concerned about protecting the tracks, Urban wrote. We didn't want to walk over and drag anything over the tracks in order to collect the data. And so what they ended up doing, because the magnetic sensors didn't really work that well, uh, they ended up putting foam pads over the areas that required scanning. And this actually turned out to be a boon and allowed them to image uh, smaller prints that they weren't able to see with the naked eye. Now, getting back to the Pleistocene, tracks like this are very rare. So it's exciting to find such a rare combination of human and proboscidean tracks. Now, some 2,625 feet of human and mammoth footprints were found. The humans were most likely hunting the mammoths for food, fur, or both, Um, since both of those were very important uh, at that time. 
And it turns out that the researchers were actually also able to discover information, uh, as they noted, about the pressure record of the tracks. And so this allowed them, for instance, to know which way the animals were moving. Um, You know, mammoth tracks don't tend to have um, distinctive fronts and backs. So uh, they were actually able to see that in 3D, when you actually were able to use the um, ground penetrating radar, you'd get a 3D image where underneath the actual print, there would be what was called a hook, um, a sort of semicircular impression on one side or the other. And so they were able to compare mammoth tracks with tracks from modern elephants and found that they were much the same. And it showed that when you had that uh, hook under there, that was where the pressure was being applied when the animal was uh, moving forward. And so that is very cool. And while this whole thing is very, very cool, and I especially love that sort of vignette of uh, human, mammoth, human, the implications for this work are actually more widespread um, and potentially profound. There are bigger, but there are bigger implications than just this case study, said Urban. The technique could possibly be applied to many other fossilized footprint sites around the world, potentially including those of dinosaurs. We have already successfully tested the method more broadly at multiple locations within White Sands. And so that is very cool. And of course, another perk of uh, GPR is that it can be used in less than ideal conditions because White Sands is not exactly uh, the best place to do this kind of work. So that makes it a good tool for use in places uh, like White Sands, where shifting uh, sands can cause trouble for more traditional excavation. Um Ichnologist Matthew Robert Bennett, professor of environmental and geographical sciences at Bournemouth University, notes that they also discovered footprints of giant sloths or megatherium, and these also showed signs of having been stalked by human hunters. We get two things from ground penetrating radar. One, tracks presence and volume, and two, we can see how the sediments below the tracks has been compressed. This is like a stored pressure record of the foot. Variations in pressure across the foot tell us about the way the foot moved, he wrote. It is this last bit which is perhaps the most important aspect. It is equivalent to taking an extinct animal, bringing it back to life, taking it to the biochemical chemics lab and getting it to walk on a pressure plate. This is what is so special and why we are so excited. And of course, all of this can be helpful in making the argument for preservation of such important sites that contain side uh, contain trackways like this. And so right now work is actually being done to turn White Sands into a national park rather than a national monument, which would give it more protection. All of us that have been working there for a while are slowly developing this kind of imaginative picture of what life at the time must have been like. All of these different possibilities unfold, he said, and there are tens of thousands of tracks that record different scenarios. We're really just scratching the surface. And so that is very, very cool. 
Okay, let us now move forward to the present to talk about another nice story. Um, Again, I do always like to try and find nice stories um, or just interesting stories. Um, And this one's just a really nice one. And so uh, you might have also heard about this, but I did want to talk about it, which is that a quote unquote lost species of undulate or hooved animal was recently spotted in Vietnam. And so the adorable silver-backed chevrotain, Tragulus versicolor, aka the mouse deer, was spotted after almost 30 years. Now, it may have been reported that the animal was considered extinct. However, Andrew Tilker, a PhD student at the Leibniz Institute and a co-author of the paper notes, that's more of a case that no one was looking that very hard for it. We had so little information on the species that we didn't have a preformed idea of whether or not it was still out there, or if it did still exist, how difficult it would be, fi- it would be to find it. Tilker told Gizmodo, we just didn't know. However, it was a distinct possibility that the area that the animal lives in, the Anamites region of Vietnam, uh, is is rampant with poaching, and there are a large number of wire snares in the area, which has have led some to deem the area to have quote unquote empty forest syndrome. So not without without um, some form of uh, possibility that it might actually unfortunately have been extinct. And of course, the last confirmed sighting was back in 1990, but that was a specimen that had been killed by a hunter. And so the conservationists spoke to local people in three provinces to see if they had been if there had been sightings of the animal. Now it actually shares a resemblance with the lesser chevrotain, Tragulus canchil, which is more widespread but does not have the same characteristic two-toned coat. Both animals are very small for undulates at about 18 inches. And so using information gathered from the locals, they installed almost 30 motion-activated camera traps to gather evidence that the small mammal is still around. Over a six-month period, the cameras captured 208 independent sightings of the silver-backed chevrotain. 15 out of the 29 stations had sightings. Now, they were most active during the day and pretty much are always solid, solitary. Uh, they were only seen with partners 3% of the time. In an age of mass extinction, confirmation, confirming the survival of lost species provides rare second chances for biodiversity conservation, opens the research article, uh, which was published in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution. Now, the research was conducted by a team from Global Wildlife Conservation in Austin, Texas, and the Leibniz Institute uh, for Zoo and Wildlife Research in Berlin, amongst other institutions. And so they are now turning to the government to put protections in place to, to secure the future of this adorable little mammal. Soon I started thinking about the gazillion questions that we needed to follow up on if we were to try and protect the species, Tilker notes. How threatened was the silverback chevrotain? To what extent had it declined from snaring? Was it the only population or could there be others? 
And so the short-term plan is to push for immediate protection of the population that the team found, and then to conduct more surveys to better determine both the size of the population and the current threats. It is almost certain that populations of silverback chevrotain have been impacted by snaring, said Tilker. Reducing snaring pressure will therefore be an important part of ensuring its survival. That in itself is a complex undertaking, which will likely include reducing demand for wildlife products, strengthening enforcement in protected areas, and awareness raising among the general public. And of course, it's important to save not only because it's frankly adorable, but because like other undulates, it most likely plays an important role in the ecosystem. Um, So most undulates have roles in seed distribution within the forest or wherever they're living. And so, you know, this is the problem is that when you uh, eliminate species, you can have unintended consequences for the rest of the ecosystem. And so hopefully they will be able to preserve the future for this adorable little critter. Okay. So uh, we still have some time. So let's talk about some uh, things that are uh, a little bit overhyped sometimes. This one especially. The next one, maybe not. Um, But let's talk about plague for a minute. Um, And so... Let, let, let's not freak out about the reports coming from China, um, where two people have been hospitalized with the pneumonic plague. Now, this is unfortunate for those people, but it is not a reason to panic. Uh, even if you're worried about the fact that uh, China is not the best at sharing information or being forthcoming, it's still not a reason to panic. Now, two people are said to be being treated in Beijing. The Chinese National Health Commission are implementing efforts to contain and treat the identified cases and increasing surveillance, said Fabio Scanto, coordinator at the World Health Organization China. Now, Scanto notes that the risk of transmission of the pulmonary plague is for close contacts, and we understand that these are being screened and managed. Now, the two are from Northwest Inner Mongolia, and this is a place where plague has been endemic since at least the Middle Ages. Now, it's true that pneumonic plague is the most deadly form. It is basically 100% kill rate, if not treated, but this is not the Middle Ages anymore, and we do actually have proper treatments for plague. Antibiotics work really well against Yersinia pestis. And so it's definitely a concern, but no one should be freaking out. Um, It's really going to be okay, I promise. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, that is something that I think people get really worried about because you think about medieval plague, but in today's day and age, very few people die from the plague. Only five people have died in China between 2014 and September of this year, according to China's National Health Commission. And so it's just not a huge deal. Um, And so especially in Inner Mongolia, that's where the plague 
originated, most people believe. Um, they think that one of the reservoir populations is actually marmots in uh, the Mongolian steppes. And so adorable little animals, but yeah, they carry plague. Um, it's kind of like uh, mice and rats in the Southwest that can harbor not only plague, but also hantavirus. And so like, you know, but people don't die of hantavirus every day. They don't die of plague every day. And so even though it may sound really scary, it's probably going to be perfectly fine. It's almost, almost, almost 100% sure that everything is going to be okay, at least from that particular thing. <laughs> Other things I, I can't give you any guarantees on. All right, so let's quickly uh, wrap up tonight with thinking about another thing that can kill you. Um, authorities from the CDC have announced that vitamin E in vaping liquid seems to have been the common denominator in all of the vaping-related disease cases that have popped up recently. For the first time, we have detected a potential toxin of concern, vitamin E acetate, CDC Principal Deputy Director and Shushat said on a call with reporters last Friday. Examining lung samples from 29 patients in 10 different states, vitamin E was found in all of the specimens. Vitamin E acetate is enormously sticky, Jim Perkle from the CDC's Environmental Health Lab said on the call. You can think of it as being you can think of it to be just like honey. So when it goes into the lung, it does hang around. Now, vitamin E acetate had already been identified as a concern in New York State, where lab tests showed that the substance was found in nearly all cannabis-containing samples analyzed back in September, according to a state health department release. And FDA Commissioner Ned Sharpless had also voiced concerns in September. Now, the substance is used to dilute liquid in vapes and especially to water down the levels of THC. Now, there is not yet a conclusive link between the substance and disease conditions and the patients, but it is the first substance to have been found in all patients. Vitamin E acetate usually does not cause harm when swallowed as a vitamin supplement or applied topically to the skin, Sushat said. However, previous non-CDC research suggests that when vitamin E acetate is inhaled, it may interfere with normal lung function. Now, the CDC is also not yet ready to declare that vapes free of THC are safe as the vaping industry is largely unregulated and therefore there are any number of known and unknown substances in vaping liquids which could cause harm. Until the relationship between vitamin E acetate and lung health is better characterized, it's important that vitamin E acetate not be added to e-cigarettes or vaping products, Shusat said. Caution should be used before substituting other cutting agents or additives for vitamin E acetate. Yikes. At least 2,051 people have reported illnesses associated with vaping, and 39 people have died after having vaped. As with cigarettes, it's not usually the nicotine or the THC that's the problem. It is the other chemicals used in addition to those. So beware. Okay, so that is all the time I have for tonight. Uh, I will be back next week. Have a good week. 
Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.